You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, we are taking it old school. You are just getting me on the podcast today. So we've been doing the official Burnt Toast podcast for just over nine months now, really over a year, if you count all the beta testing I did with audio by which I mean recorded Zooms before that. So we have more than made this baby. And we've been reflecting a bit on what's working and what we'd like to do better. And one thing I've realized lately is that having a guest every single week is not an entirely sustainable pace for us. I want a little more time in between interviews to research and prepare so I can make sure I'm bringing you the best of what those conversations can be. So we're shifting things around a bit. You're going to get a few more regular Corinne and me episodes, which I know everyone is excited about, and a few more just me episodes, which I hope we'll be excited about. (laughs) We shall see. So what I'm going to do today is revisit an old piece from the newsletter. This is actually the most popular piece I've ever written. It ran last September, and it's called Please Stop Romanticizing Your Child's Lunchbox. I'm going to read the piece first, and then I'm going to discuss a little bit of the reaction that this piece received and where I'm landing on the question of school lunch now, a year later, at a different place in the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. Before we start, I should note that this piece has a really awkward intro because I wrote it back when I was still figuring out my newsletter format. So I'm going to skip over some stuff at the top. It was like housekeeping. It's not really relevant and just kind of start in the middle. Listeners should also know that there are lots of sources linked in the text of this piece. All of the statistics and other reporting are cited. So you will find all of those in the transcript for this episode at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. So all of that is coming up, but first a quick break. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, you already got this sneak peek, but my book has a cover and I'm so excited to share that with all of you. It also means it is time for me to officially tell you, you can pre-order it. The book is called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. It comes out from Henry Holt on April 25th, 2023. So yes, I will remind you again a few more times about that, but why not go ahead and pre-order it now by clicking the links in your episode description or asking for it anywhere you buy books. And let's just talk for a quick minute about why pre-orders matter so much. Publishers use pre-orders to decide how much to invest in a book in terms of its marketing and publicity. That directly corresponds to the amount of media buzz a book generates. Think NPR interviews, TV appearances, prestigious book reviews, and all of those contribute in their own way to pre-orders and, of course, sales once the book is out. Retailers use pre-orders to gauge how many copies of the book to stock in stores and whether or not to display the book prominently in the window and on the new arrivals table. Amazon and other online retailers use pre-orders to decide how hard to push a book on their homepage or their new release lists. All of this also drives future sales because people who see a book while book shopping are much more likely to buy it than people who cannot see it. Also, it's pretty rare to make a bestseller list without strong pre-orders because pre-orders all count towards your first week of sales, and that's when most authors make a list. But there is a bigger reason I care about sales for Fat Talk, And that is, we will not make real progress on dismantling diet culture and anti-fat bias until this conversation reaches a broader audience. And until corporations are convinced that consumers won't pay for fat phobia and will, in fact, pay for something better. 
So if you are able, please pre-order Fat Talk at the links in your episode description or anywhere you buy books. You can also ask your library to pre-order it and put it on hold when they do. And thank you so much for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. So this is Please Stop Romanticizing Your Child's Lunchbox. It ran on September 21st, 2021. Back in April, the USDA announced that it would extend a waiver that allows schools to serve free meals to all students through the entire 2021 to 2022 school year. Families no longer have to apply or demonstrate eligibility for free lunches in most districts. Cafeterias are just feeding every kid who shows up for lunch. This effort started as a response to the pandemic-fueled increase in childhood hunger, as I reported for the New York Times in 2020. And anti-hunger advocates are hoping to make it a permanent change by getting Congress to pass the Universal School Meals Act. Spoiler the act did not pass. So we are now officially back to school in every district in the nation, and most kids are walking into a radically different cafeteria than ever before. There are some nuances to this, of course. Please note that USDA is not providing a free universal meal program, a USDA spokesperson told me via email, because I guess the government never wants to look like it's caring too much. States have to opt into the waiver before schools can serve free meals to all. Otherwise, they can participate in the normal national school lunch program, where kids pay full price, reduced price, or nothing based on their family's income eligibility, meaning schools and families still have to do that application process. And some, such as the Wakusha School District in Wisconsin, have opted not to participate. In that case, it was because some school board members worried that feeding kids lunch would make them, quote, spoiled, and also, rather inexplicably, pave the way to mask mandates. The school district has since reversed that decision. The USDA does not yet have data on how many districts around the country opted in or out, but the same spokesperson confirmed that, quote, the majority of states are in. So we can expect to see a big spike in participation numbers from the last time this data was collected in 2014 to 2015, when just one in five schools offered free lunch to all students. I also did some extremely unscientific Instagram polling on my own account, and then I borrowed yummy toddler food for a much larger one. And we found that 81 to 89% of followers who voted in our polls said that lunch is free at their kids' school this year. Unless you are a heartless Wisconsin school board member, universal free lunch is unequivocally great for the estimated 12 million American kids who can't get enough to eat at home. There is no debate about that, which is why we should have been doing it already for decades. But what if you don't have a financial need for school lunch? The real question that may very well determine whether or not universal free lunch becomes a permanent part of the American education system is will nice white parents let our kids eat school lunch? So far, the answer appears to be an awful lot of us won't. Quote, roughly 20 million eligible children, mostly from middle and upper middle class families, continue to opt out of the national program by bringing lunch or by buying special a la carte food items not covered by the program, wrote Jennifer Gaddis, Ph.D., an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin and author of The Labor of Lunch in a recent New York Times op-ed from February 2020. We don't yet have data on how the shift to free lunch will change that for the school year, so I once again turned to Instagram for more insight. In my, again, totally unscientific poll of 210 parents, 49% of parents said, yep, their kids are eating the free school lunch, and 51% said, no, they are still sending in lunchboxes. In other words, just over half of this group are paying for a meal and investing time and labor in preparing said meal that their children could be eating for free. 
I suspect the vast majority of these folks were horrified by that Wisconsin school board. These are parents who support free lunch programs, in theory at least, for other kids. Indeed, some said they didn't want to take free lunch away from the kids who need it. But the reality is that participation rates drive this program's funding. When millions of families pack lunch, their actions reduce the political will and financial resources necessary to make public school lunches better for everyone, wrote Gaddis last year. I checked in with Gaddis yesterday, and she confirmed that this is still true, even though lunch is now free. The federal government reimburses schools per student eating lunch, and they reimburse at the highest rate per student eating for free, so schools can now receive the maximum subsidy. I'm just going to interrupt the reading here to say, again, that is from last year when school lunches were free. Now that most school districts have done away with the free programs, we're back to the original plan, which is still that participation at all income levels drives the funding that school lunch programs receive. Okay, onward. Perhaps even more important, when lunch is free for everyone, then the kids who need free lunch aren't stigmatized by the kids who don't. You can often see huge divides along income and racial lines in cafeterias between the kids who get free lunch and the kids who bring lunch from home, notes Gaddis. If we want to create spaces in our schools that are inclusive and welcoming for all, participation really matters. When people with the economic means opt out of school lunch, it sends the message to policymakers that this is a program they don't really have to care about. So, why aren't more parents, especially progressive parents, sending their kids to the lunch line? Diet culture has taught us that school lunches are not good enough for our kids. I asked the lunch packers for follow-up, and this lesson came through explicitly in about 14% of my respondents and was implied by many more. While the lunch is free, it's not actually healthy, and I like to know my kids aren't eating junk, said one mom. In fact, school lunches are pretty darn healthy. A 2018 analysis of over 16 years of data concluded that schools, quote, are now the single healthiest place Americans are eating. This shift is due in large part to the 2010 Healthy and Hunger-Free Kids Act, championed by Michelle Obama, which overhauled school nutrition standards and changed the nutritional intake of school children in several important ways. And, as Gaddis argued in her piece, with more kids eating, school lunches could get even healthier. The food service director of the Austin Independent School District, Annalise Tanner, told a local news outlet that the district could afford to serve grass-fed beef if the kids who currently opt out of the national program would eat school lunch just once a week. Tanner is now the director of research and assessment at the Chef Ann Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping schools do more from scratch cooking. But no, cafeteria meals likely won't pass muster if your definition of healthy comes from diet culture. Quote, we eat plant-based, or there aren't enough whole foods, came up a lot in my Instagram DMs. See also, kid says school lunch tastes like plastic, and many similar comments equating school lunch with, quote, processed food, fast food, or diner food. And it's not just my followers. In Royal Oaks, Michigan, parents protested when the elementary school's free lunch included grab-and-go items like bagged goldfish and Scooby-Doo graham cracker sticks. And the Chef Am Foundation, where Tanner now works, had to apologize recently after posting a meme unfavorably comparing school meals to ultra-processed foods. It's also true, as Bettina Elias Siegel reported last week, trigger warning in that link for O words, that due to COVID restrictions, labor shortages, and supply chain issues, many schools have been forced to switch out hot meals for grab-and-go lunches. Gaddis acknowledges that these issues may be impacting menu composition right now. 
What you're likely to find in a typical cafeteria right now is more processed foods and less scratch cooking than you would have seen pre-pandemic, she says. And COVID or not, many schools incorporate processed foods into their meals, both because such foods are cheap and convenient when you're mass-producing meals and don't have the budget to hire experienced school cooks, and because their pre-printed nutrition labels make it easy to ensure they are meeting complex government nutritional standards. But graham cracker sticks are not our enemy. Nutrition perfectionism is. As I've written before, the problem with processed foods isn't their ingredient lists. It's our culture's dysfunctional relationship with them. Your fear of snack crackers is a big reason why your kids seem so obsessed with them. Letting kids eat these foods at school, alongside the fruits, vegetables, and other foods that school districts are also required to serve, could be a great way to lessen a child's scarcity mindset around them. But to do that, we would have to sift through the layers of classism and racism that underpin our feeling that kids eating, quote, fast food for lunch is proof of lazy or bad parenting. Many parents who are using school lunch this year told me they feel guilty for taking such a, quote, easy way out, as if letting your child eat the same meal that another kid has no choice to eat is being a hashtag bad mom. Meanwhile, one school lunch abstainer wrote that she has been dreaming about packing lunches for kids forever, heart emoji. Instagram, Pinterest, and the rise of the momfluencer has turned school lunch packing into a cross between competitive sport and creative self-care practice. We're flooded with images of $60 planet boxes and $42 Omi boxes, rainbow produce cut into stars and hearts, and the message that all of this is a valid message of our mothering. But that's only true if your definition of motherhood is almost exclusively white and upper income. Possibly related, around 40% of my followers said they were skipping school lunch because, quote, my kid won't eat it. As the parent of one child with a traumatic feeding history and another doing the typical picky preschooler thing, I absolutely feel this. But within this picky group, I noticed that responses ranged from our fit, she needs her safe food, to a more shrugging, my kid doesn't like it. I wonder here whether it's always the kid who doesn't like the food or the parent or the kid internalizing a parent's rigid standards. Children with true feeding disorders or other sensory challenges do need extra support and may be overwhelmed by trying to eat in a cafeteria setting. And of course, kids with food allergies, especially life-threatening ones, may need a packed lunch to eat safely. That group made up about 8% of my respondents. But... Our more garden-variety picky eaters may get more adventurous in the cafeteria than you'll ever see at home. Research shows that kids tend to eat a larger variety of foods when they get repeated exposure to them in a pure setting, as Sally Sampson and Natalie DeGate-Muth wrote for the New York Times back in 2015. This is also another reason not to freak out about processed foods on school lunch menus. Goldfish and the like are often the familiar, predictable foods that cautious kids need to use as stepping stones and to feel empowered when navigating a new eating situation. About one-fifth of the parents in my poll said they took a hybrid approach, letting kids study weekly school lunch menus and decide which days to bring or buy. Gaddis and I agree that this seems like a great workaround for most picky kids because it lets them build confidence eating in a new setting with foods they like and still encourages involvement in school meals, which benefits everyone. Some of this group even require kids to pack lunches themselves on the days they don't want to eat the school meal, which is a rather genius way to get kids more involved in their own meal planning mental load. 
I also heard from a vocal minority of parents who really do want to do school lunches but have opted out because of logistical issues, especially long lines that don't leave their kids time to eat, especially in places limiting lunch periods to 15 minutes right now to reduce COVID risk. I too worry about kids who need to stand in line, eat, and get to the bathroom during this time frame. Solidarity to all the kindergarten teachers dealing with afternoon wet pants. If a lunch logistic is your deal breaker this year, Gata says, just don't make this your permanent decision about school lunch. And do contact your elected officials and let them know that you want them to support the Universal School Meals Act and several other pieces of legislation pending now. So no, school lunch is not perfect, but the problems likely aren't what you think, and it could be so much better if we started to shift away from this diet culture-fueled hierarchy of kid lunches, with cafeteria trays always on the bottom. Letting go of these standards for perfect kid lunches and perfect parenthood is hard. More than one mom told me they pack lunch because, quote, this way I know what food she's offered, or even more bluntly, I like the control. But our kids will have a healthier relationship with food in general if we empower them to eat this meal without our micromanagement. Releasing some of this control can be a way to let our kids know we trust them, to encourage their curiosity, to enable more community building in cafeterias, instead of dividing kids up into those with lunchboxes and those without. This could be how we turn school meals into something different and better, and probably still containing graham cracker sticks. All right, so that was the piece that ran last year. It was really fun to revisit it. I mean, also really depressing to realize what a huge loss it was that the federal waiver on free school lunches ended June 30th. And we're going to see the fallout of that in the coming months in terms of childhood hunger rates increasing, poverty rates. I mean, it's truly a disaster. So there are several threads to the reaction of this piece that I think are really interesting to discuss. And I'm just going to kind of talk through them a little bit. One is, I actually heard from many parents of picky eaters and parents of kids with sensory processing disorders and other true feeding challenges, feeding disorders, who said that eating school lunch has been really helpful for their kids. I mean, so that was the place where I was sort of giving me out. And a lot of parents were like, no, no, this has been a really useful tool. It's a more neutral place to try new foods than the family dinner table. And because school lunches are designed to be kid-friendly, because they have the goldfish crackers and the graham cracker sticks, they often do feature foods that selective eaters do well with. This is not to say that school lunch will work for every selective eater, but don't rule it out as an option full stop just because you have a picky kid. It can absolutely be a helpful tool. A lot of you also told me about the logistical issues with your school lunch programs, which I talked about in the piece, but everyone wanted to share anyway. The super short lunch times, the long lines, a lot of food shortages happened last year in many districts. So all of that got worse during the pandemic. And I get it if you packed lunch for your kids under those circumstances. But I do still think those of us with the privilege to pack should not check out of these issues completely. We still need to be thinking of lunch as a school community event that we all participate in and work on. And so if those were issues last year and now, I mean, I know my own kids' school district and a lot of districts have gone back to pre-COVID models of serving lunch, maybe it's time to try it again and see if it's better. The really fascinating thing, though, is how many comments I get, and this just happened on Instagram. I did a repost of this piece at the start of back-to-school season, and so many people, despite having presumably read this article or at least the Instagram post about it, said to me, I can't buy school lunch because the food isn't healthy and is too processed and has too much sugar. 
This is the whole problem, you guys. We have to stop defining healthy as a plate full of fresh vegetables. Lunch does not need to be a salad to get a gold star. Most kids won't even eat salad. Also, plenty of schools serve salad. We can define a healthy lunch as a meal that kids are able to navigate themselves, as a meal where they share food with their friends and community, as a meal where they can get full enough on whatever they're eating and get the energy they need to learn and play the rest of the school day. All of that can come in the form of an Uncrustable. We don't need to make this so hard. The last thing I wanted to talk about is what we're doing in my house this year for school lunch, because I also got some questions about that. So one thing I didn't share when I wrote the piece last year was at the time, my kids were both attending a small private school that didn't even offer a lunch program. This was a super hard decision we made during COVID due to my older daughter's high-risk status. It's absolutely a decision we were able to make due to a pile of privilege. But let me tell you how much I missed public school lunch program during the two years we spent in private school. We had been in public school for her kindergarten and first grade years and been active school lunch participants then. And yeah, packing lunches, packing two kids' lunches and snacks every day for two years straight, not a fan. So this year, we are so happy to be back at public school. And our school, like many schools, is no longer offering free universal lunch because the federal government program expired in June. So we are paying $3.10 per lunch, and I am happy to do it. I am grateful we can afford it. I am really glad to be participating and hopefully helping increase spending for the program to benefit all the kids in our school district. So my younger daughter buys every day and she gets the exact same thing every day, peanut butter and jelly and chocolate milk plus whatever fruit they have that day. This is her first year. She's in kindergarten. School lunch is totally new to her, but she's very proud of being a buyer, as she puts it, versus a bringer. And yeah, she's getting the same safe foods every day, but that makes sense because she's doing a thousand other new things in her day as a kindergartner. And she also is trying some new foods. The first day she told me she ate mango and carrots with her peanut butter and jelly. And believe me when I say those are two foods she has never willingly eaten at home. So it's like just a win-win all around. My older daughter, who is more selective, who has the traumatic feeding history, and she's also a lot more independent at age nine, is doing more of the hybrid approach that Gaddis and I talked about in that piece. She's studying the cafeteria menu each week, she's buying some days, and she's packing her own lunch the other days. I told her she could make that decision as long as she packs her lunch herself, because I know even if she forgets, she can eat the cafeteria's peanut butter and jelly, even if the bread they have is not her favorite. She has opinions about the thickness of their bread. So this is working really well for her because she loves the control of picking her own lunch. She is buying less frequently than her sister, but still buying at least once or twice a week. And I'll call that a win for now. I'm expecting as the school year goes on, the novelty of packing wears off, that we're going to transition to more buying. But even if we don't, she's at least participating. And we've also had some really good conversations about the role of privilege in school lunch and the importance of school lunch programs so she can understand and advocate for it, even if her own comfort level isn't quite there with the food. So happy to talk about all of that more in the comments. If you guys have questions, if there's more about school lunch you think we need to get into, I feel like this is a topic I will always be revisiting around this time of year. So definitely let me know your questions. And now we will wrap up with a butter for your burnt toast. So you're just getting my Rex this week because there's only me. I'm just talking to myself here. 
but I am giving you three of them, three butters. These are all things I did over Labor Day weekend when I had my house to myself for three whole days for the first time in nine years. And as newsletters readers know, I spent a lot of that time finishing my book and stress organizing my kitchen, but that's not all I did. I also did have some true leisure in there because there are just so many hours when your family leaves and you have your house to yourself for three days. So my first recommendation is just that. And I told Dan, we are both going to get to do that at least once a year going forward. We each have to find a reason to take the kids away for a couple of days and give the other one the house because game changer. So that's recommendation number one. Kick your family out of your house and be alone for three days. Recommendation number two is the novel Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin. I read it that weekend and loved it. I wanted to talk about it here because someone on Instagram that I follow compared it to the novel A Little Life, and I got scared because I was like a third of the way into it at that point, and I was like, oh man, is this going to get super traumatic and terrifying the way that book is? But I talked to some folks who said, no, it doesn't. I kept reading. And so I just wanted to put out there, I can reassure all of you who are my fellow literary trauma avoiders that this book is not anywhere on the A Little Life scale. There's not the explicit descriptions of abuse and horror and the sort of relentless tragedy of that book. Some of us needed therapy sessions after that book, and there is no shame in that. Tomorrow and Tomorrow, Tomorrow does have heartbreak. It does have loss. It does have some violence, but it is also just a beautiful story of friendship and taught me a lot about video game culture that I didn't know as someone who's not a gamer, but I know lots of you are gamers. So if you are a gamer, you'll particularly love it. The other thing I did that weekend was to go hiking with the Body Liberation Hiking Club of the Hudson Valley. Julia Tertian and I talked about them on a recent podcast episode. It was so super fun to join Julia and the group for a hike at Von Stock State Park here in the Hudson Valley. We had an absolute blast. I really want to write more about that experience soon because it was such a unique experience being in the outdoors with that particular group. So, I'm going to link to the reel they posted about the hike if you want to check that out. It's very cute and funny. And yeah, stay tuned for probably an essay about that coming soon. And then the last thing I want to recommend, which I'm sure is not a new recommendation to anyone, but I just want to join the multitudes of people endorsing this show. I binge watched A League of Their Own that weekend, the new version by Abby Jacobs on Amazon Prime sobbed through the two last episodes, fervently hoping for season two. Oh my goodness. It is such a beautiful, funny, smart, thoughtful show. I loved the original movie. The show is so much better in so many ways in terms of being more inclusive, having better representation, really exploring queer culture, the Black community. I mean, it's a masterpiece. So check it out if you haven't yet and thank me later. Okay, that's our show today. Thank you so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you like this episode, please rate and review us in your podcast player and consider subscribing to the Burnt Toast newsletter. Reader subscriptions are what enable me to make this podcast and report essays like the one I just read. So if you find that work valuable, I really hope you'll join us. You can subscribe at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. 
Our transcripts are edited and formatted by the fantastic Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.